Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Edelberg. Once again, welcome to the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 131. Hope you all have had a great week. You know, I already posted an episode earlier this week, but you know what? Let's get another one out. I have a couple interviews to conduct today. Very excited about those. And believe it or not, I'm doing an Instagram Live tomorrow afternoon with Ryan Chrysler. So Ryan Chrysler is an instructor at the Floridian down here in Palm Beach, Florida. He was a guest on the podcast back on episode 106. I went up to the Floridian, got the full treatment, sat down, had a great conversation about his career, working with members at the Floridian, and then, oh yeah, you know, DJ and Brooks just swing by to work on their games. Fun conversation. Then he put me through the ringer. I got on the launch monitor and then had a fitness assessment and, um, yeah, I might want to find the gym a little bit more often. Um, he's going to turn the tables on me, so to speak, ask me some questions. I'm not sure yet what they're going to be or where it's going to go. But again, we're doing it tomorrow. That's uh, Instagram Live, Friday, April 10th at 2 p.m. Eastern. So if you're not already following along on Instagram, the handle is the Back of the Range Podcast. And uh, I'll probably share some stories and also perhaps drop some hints on future guests. You never know. Little housekeeping note. So the last episode was 130, Andy Walker. And for some reason, there were some slight technical difficulties with Apple Podcast. I don't think I heard anything about Spotify, but Apple Podcast, there definitely was some sort of an issue. Uh, to the listeners that reached out to me to let me know, thank you so much for doing that. It has been fixed. You may need to re-download that episode, but please do that. It's a fantastic one. You know, Andy Walker, like I said in the intro to that episode, he won a national championship as a player at Pepperdine in 97. He won back-to-back -back national junior college championships as a coach. He won a NCAA Division II national championship with Lynn University. He was on the big break. We talked about so many things, and we could probably fill up another episode. So definitely go check that one out. Um, as I always say, every episode is available at thebackoftherange.com. That's where we have a little bit of merch left for sale. If you have some ideas about new merch, please let me know. I'm getting ready to place some orders and get some things out there for you guys. So please shoot me an email, ben at thebackoftherange.com. Always open for suggestions, ideas, all that stuff. So now on to my guest on this episode. Now, here is what is so amazing about the community of golf. I was playing at Addison Reserve down here in uh, South Florida. I think it was February with my guy Harvey. And we're on the range, and he introduces me to his friend David. And we just start chatting, talking about golf, and, and you know, wearing one of my logo trucker hats. And the conversation of the podcast comes up, and almost immediately he says, you know, I got a guy that would be just perfect for your podcast. He played the European Tour, played in the U.S. Open, and that is exactly how this episode 131 came to be. Because of David, who is now a listener of the Back of the Range, my guest on this episode is John Hahn. Quite the resume and career, both amateur and professional. He played at Kent State. He made a great run at the 2010 U.S. Amateur at Chambers Bay. And like I said, played in the U.S. Open at Marion. He was on the European Tour in 2014, basically following that same Brooks Kepka peter Uline plan. And again, we talked about that. Talked about a lot of topics. He's out of professional golf now, but... 
has not looked back. He's enjoying his career in the finance world. And you might be hearing his name around the U.S. mid-amateur um, in a couple of years. So might want to watch out for that. Now, I don't normally ask a guest to talk about a specific round of golf in their career. I kind of feel that, you know, I don't need to walk someone through something like that shot for shot. And I did do it on this episode, but I had to at least ask a little bit when you have a guy shoot 58. That's right. John Hahn shot 58 in European Tour Q School. So I could let that one pass. So let's get started. Great episode. And actually, you might want to stay tuned to the end of it because John kind of turns the table and asks me some questions. So pretty interesting end to this episode. Let's get started. John, welcome to the back of the range, sir. How are you? Thank you very much. I am a little tired given what's going on in markets the past couple of weeks, but I'm otherwise good. Thanks for having me. Well, I, absolutely. Well, we're going to try and talk about golf, but since you are in the uh, in the financial world, um, you know, really tell my listeners what the hell they should be doing with their money. Give some free financial advice in the in the line of or in the uh, in the the time that we're living in right now with coronavirus. I mean, we're looking at March 24th when we're recording this. Um, do you take personal responsibility for the market going up over 2000 points today? Did you do that? <laughs> I would love to take responsibility for it, but I certainly did not. And I think that my advice would be better given on golf than it would be on investing at this point. So, okay. So leave it in the mattress. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Got it. Okay. Perfect. All right. Well, we've, we've covered that, that, that we, we got that, <laughs> that out of the way. Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely crazy time we're living in where we're still kind of, I think the country's still kind of locked down, so to speak. Um, I've kind of been asking people, people this lately, uh, big adjustment for you, uh, not so much of a big adjustment. Like how have you been kind of coping with, you got to stay plugged in with, with work, but you know, you don't have the freedom. We all don't have the freedom that we used to have. So like, what are you, what are you kind of doing to stay sane? Oh, it's, it's been a huge adjustment. I mean, so we've been working from home for the past couple of weeks. Obviously, uh, your work setup at home is much different than your setup in the office. Um, but I have to thank Joe Webster and the Dive for staying open. And I've been trying to get out there on the weekends to uh, sort of uh, relieve some of the pent up stress that takes place during the week. So I would say it's been a lot of uh, time spent with my wife and with my dog and trying to stay plugged in to the extent that I can. You're talking about the Dive Preserve, right? I am talking about the Dive Preserve. Great course, and I have a very funny and embarrassing story about myself. A really good friend of mine who's a guest on the podcast, Greg O'Mahony, uh, they used to be members out there, and gosh, this must have been maybe 10 years ago or something like that. He's like, hey, why don't you come out to the Dive? We're going to play. I'm like, oh, that sounds great, and heard all about the place. I roll out there, and I got you know, a pair of white shorts on, nice and crisp, nice, nice white shoes, white belt, in a navy blue Under Armour mock short sleeve shirt. <laughs> and I'm looking good, man. I, I, I'm looking sharp. And I pull up there, park my car. I didn't valet because I, you know, I carry my bag. I got my bag on my shoulder. I'm looking sharp. I'm walking up and, and I'm getting these looks. And I'm like, what is my, my fly down? What? I look good. What the hell's wrong? <laughs> put, my put my bag on the rack and going to the pro shop and hi i'm ben adelberg i'm playing with the omanis they're like yeah uh not in that shirt you're not i'm like excuse me <laughs> yeah we we you can't wear that you need a collar i'm like oh i literally felt like i walked in there with my pants around my ankles and uh 
yeah, fortunately they sent me to uh, the locker room and, and my buddy Greg's dad had a, had a red golf shirt, heavy cotton from like 1997. And um, of course it's brutally hot that day. So I went from thinking I look good to basically wearing the loner coat at a steakhouse that has mustard stains and relish all over it. And uh, that was my first day at the diet preserve. So, wow. I think the mock turtleneck died with tiger and it should stay dead. Oh, I think oh, that needs to stay away. Oh yeah. But, but it was, it was good. I looked great and just, yeah, no. So I, I, that was the last time I think I ever wore one of those. Um, but yeah, so let's. Uh, I know we. I know the listeners right now are, would love to hear more about my fashion sense, but we got to get into a little bit about your golf uh, playing career before you became a uh, a financial analyst and uh, and when in the wealth management space, you um, you played a little golf. I think that's fair to say, right? That's fair to say. All right. So how'd you get into the game? Tell me about your start. So my dad is a longtime Titleist rep. I grew up in Ohio, was born in Columbus and spent gosh, 10 years in Columbus, another 10 years in Cleveland. Um, and I got started right away. When I say right away, I mean, I got started before I could stand up. I had a club in my hand, um, hitting balls in the backyard, just basically loving the game and being around the game every day. And the fact that my dad was in the industry made a lot of sense um, from both an access perspective and then just being lucky to have access to equipment uh, and it, it was like it, it marked a great time for he and I because we could go out we could play we could spend time together we could talk about life there were so many memories that I have uh, early on from playing golf with my dad and uh, I really grew to love the game so that's great but you do understand that as soon as you say my dad was a titleist rep everyone listening right now is assuming that there's just stacks and stacks of golf balls and equipment all over your house, and you have literally free reign for Titleist gear for since birth. So um, go ahead and dispel that rumor, because that probably was the assumption of all your friends when you're playing junior golf. That certainly was the assumption of all of my friends when I was playing junior golf, and that is definitely not true. Uh, golf balls were currency, and they were not free. Um, so I, I certainly had to work for them and, uh, Titleist doesn't make money by giving it away. So no, I did not have unlimited access. Definitely didn't. And we joke to this day that, uh, I probably bought more golf balls this year than I've been given by my dad jokingly. So no, no, not, not unlimited access by any means, but I'm, (laughs) but, but I'm, I'm dead on accurate, right? Everyone just assumed that, that just, just golf balls were just falling out of your house. Oh, Totally. Absolutely. They were like, you must have dozens just stacked and stacked and stacked. And I'm like, guys, it doesn't work that way. I've got like maybe three dozen balls right now. That's <laughs> it. If I lose three today, then I'm down to two and a half dozen. Did you have like a rebellious, like teenage year where you were mad at your dad and just showed up wearing tailor-made just to get back, get even with him? Just like, I'm going to show you, I'm not getting a tattoo. I'm not letting my hair grow long. I'm going to wear a tailor-made hat. Oh my gosh. I had rebellious times, but it was not related to that. I'll tell you a funny story. So when we lived in New York briefly, uh, I was where my dad got his first territory with Titleist. 
I went outside in this field across the yard from uh, our house and I took out, I remember I had Titleist T-Rex clubs and you probably have never heard of what those are, but they're basically junior clubs. Okay. And I would tee up little rocks on a tee and hit them with my driver. Oh God. Not knowing that I'm putting, you know, dents and chunks in the face of my driver. And then further, I would go into his car. I would open up a dozen golf balls, go and hit those around the field, get dirt and grass and mud all over them, and then put them back into the sleeve, <laughs> back into the package, and then he'd go sell it to a club. And the club shows up. They're like, John, these golf balls have been used. We can't take these. And he's like, I have no idea how that happened. Yeah. And lo and behold, he learned about three months later <laughs> what was causing that. <laughs> that's that's awesome oh my gosh um did you play um i mean the typical junior golf ajga circuit or because i know you played collegially at kent state all american there but what was kind of your start and and how did you kind of get yourself in a spot where you could play d1 golf that's a great question no i definitely didn't follow the normal track i, I would say that i played in a lot of different junior events but not a ton of AJGA events for whatever reason. Um, I played high school golf, played in a lot of the USGA events. I think I qualified for my first U.S. junior. Um, it must have been my freshman or sophomore year in high school. I qualified for a U.S. amateur, I believe, the year after. That certainly was my sophomore year in high school. Um, and then began to play more and more. I played in things like the Scott Robertson in Virginia. Um, and I actually ended up winning that event. And then that sort of led into playing in a couple of more AJGA events. I believe I played in a Cannon Cup. Must have been maybe my senior year in high school. Um, and then that really got me into a position where I was recruited by Kent, Ohio State, a couple of different programs. And just given my relationship that I built with Herb Page, it made no sense to go anywhere else but Kent State. Yeah, Herb Page, I mean, for people that don't know, I mean, just absolute legend in, in coaching. I mean, gosh, he's been head coach there since 1978, and, you know, players like Ben Curtis have rolled through there. I mean, you know, gosh, I mean, 23 times he's the conference coach of the year and uh, over 100, you know, all-conference players and just, you know, Corey Connors and Mackenzie Hughes. I mean, the name – the names just go on and on. And when you think of Kent state, unless you're really paying attention, you may not think of it as a golf powerhouse. What kind of drew you into, to coach page and to Kent state coach page was a 12 letter winner at, at Kent. He played football, hockey, and golf, um, and was just as tenacious as anybody I'd ever met, wanted to win more than anyone I'd ever met. Uh, and I knew that from the first day that I ever met him. So I would say when you blend sort of learning from and being mentored by somebody like that with what he was doing with the program at the time, which with the generous gift that the Ferrara family uh, gave Kent State, as well as Ben Curtis, the support that he gave, Herb built uh, the first indoor training facility that the golf program ever had back in, this was 2000 seven i believe and so growing up in ohio as you know it snows and the last thing i wanted to do was to not have access to golf for a period of five months um, and the fact that herb had built that facility made all the sense in the world for me to stay there so i would i would say it was a couple of different things number one i knew that he was a winner and i was a winner as well um, and then having that indoor training facility meant a big deal to me so that was what drove me there so you have this great 
you know, amateur pedigree where you're qualifying for U.S. juniors and U.S. AMs, and you went on to play professionally, you've played in the U.S. Open, you've played in the European Tour. Can you possibly see yourself having that success if you're not at Kent State? How much did that have to do with your success? Oh, it had so much to do with it. I mean, learning from Herb, it was unbelievable. Every year, for whatever reason, we would have these cycles where our team played well and then didn't play well. And I mean, undoubtedly, it was like he would rally the troops right around the time that, you know, conference tournament came around and regionals came around and finals came around. And it was just learning how to prepare properly for events and making sure that you put yourself in the in the right position to be able to perform as well as you could. Um, there's no doubt that was hugely significant to my success um, and meaningful. And I don't think I would, would have been the same player had I gone somewhere else. You turned pro in 2011, and I'm going to get back to that because I want to ask you about the relationship with, with – uh, or how Coach Page helped you kind of chart your path to playing professionally. But before I do that, I, I have to hit upon 2010 U.S. Amateur. You you lose in the round of 16 at Chambers Bay. Um, but you uh, you actually have this – it's like this titleist grudge match because you, uh, you go up against uh, Peter Uline. <laughs> whose father, uh, you know, Wally Uline was CEO of a Cushnet, which is, you know, parent company of Titleist and FootJoy and everything. And, and your dad's a Titleist sales rep. So you obviously know, I'm assuming you know exactly who Peter is. I'm assuming that's not the first time you've played uh, with or against him. He went to Oklahoma State. So I'm assuming there's plenty of times you saw him in college. Do you remember maybe the night before that match, maybe anything unique about that situation? Oh, I've known Peter for a very long time and I've always been very good friends with him. So um, I would say, yes, going into that match, I was beyond excited to draw Peter and was looking forward to the challenge. He was a much better player than I was at the time. Uh, but when you're when you're that deep into a USG event, you're clearly playing well. Um, and I'll tell you what, Peter never led in that match until the final hole. Um so we had a wonderful experience. And jokingly, we always say there was one benefit that came out of <laughs> my loss in that match, and it was my dad's job security. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, but we had such a wonderful match. And yeah, I've been around Peter for a very long time. Chambers Bay, you know, most people that think about Chambers Bay, they think about Jordan Spieth winning the U.S. Open there after uh, DJ three-putted the last uh, the last green on that, that par five. And uh, and then they maybe think about, you know, Cole Hammer with his uh, debut kind of in the golfing world as like a 15-year-old. But, yeah, 2010 was really the, the opening of that course on the national scene at that U.S. Amateur. When you got there and saw this place, such a unique golf course, and were you excited at the challenge or were you kind of like, yeah, man, I just – I qualified for the U.S. Amateur and – you know, I, I, you know, I'd like to go to a course maybe that, you know, is, is a known entity. You know, I want to go to a, a, pe a pebble. I want to go to an Oakmont. I want to go to a, um, you know, a Marion, something that's traditional. And now I'm going to whatever the hell this thing is out in the Northwest. What were your thoughts going into Chambers Bay? That is a wonderful question. So my first two U.S. amateurs were at Hazeltine and Pinehurst. Yeah, so talk okay. about known quantities like there is no surprises when you go to a site like that. You know exactly what's occurred there. You've watched PGAs and U.S. Opens and no surprises. So you show up at Chambers Bay. All of a sudden, it's this brand new course that you've heard a lot about, but you have never seen. And it's all fescue grass. And the course is brown. 
and you can't find the putting green because it looks like a cart path and it looks like every other part of the golf course. Yeah. And you finally find these holes cut in the ground and you drop your ball and your ball bounces a foot and a half off the ground because the golf course is so firm and fast. Uh, but my dad and I have, um, a different perspective and I think approach than, than some other players and that we, um, we looked at it like we were going to embrace the challenge and embrace um, just the, the approach of the golf course being different and providing and allowing for different shots. And I felt like a large percentage of the field that week was just out of it because for whatever reason they had a built in excuse or something wasn't sort of, you know, structured the way that they wanted to be. The golf course is too long or was too hard or was too firm or was unfair. Um, and you just, you can never look at a golf course like that or else you play your way out of it before you even tee off. You know, that kind of sounds very similar to the the famous Nicholas line where he would show up at a tournament and someone would say, oh, you know, this the rough is too thick. And he's like, okay, I can scratch that guy off the list. He's not going to win because he already beat himself in the locker room. We haven't even gotten on the golf course yet. Um, I'm guessing that this is an attitude that you've taken with you. If you had it at, at, at the amateur level, you had to have had it at the professional level. So uh, I'll probably we might need to revisit this. I'm curious how much that helped you in your professional career getting through Q School to get into the European Tour. And um, you know, we'll, we'll we'll talk later about that because I'm curious if that's something that you uh, took with you along the way. So you turned professional 2011 and. As you know, as everyone knows, there are numerous ways to get to the promised land. You can play mini tours. You could travel the country and, and try Monday and play in the random state open. And uh, there's all these different avenues. And you ultimately decided to go to, uh, you know, European Q School. And that, and that may be in 2013. But I guess talk me through how you, your dad, um, you know, Coach you know, Coach Page, how did you get your game plan of like, I'm going to tackle professional golf? So just like any other player, my senior year, I was playing fine. Um, I stayed amateur through the U.S. amateur at the end of the summer, hoping to make the Walker Cup team because there was nothing else in the world that I wanted to do more than to play on a Walker Cup team. Unfortunately, didn't make it. So I was heartbroken at the time. Um, but then I turned pro and then to reiterate exactly what you just said, I basically did whatever I could the next two years to try to get on tour. I played in the state opens, played in Mondays. I moved to North Carolina. I played on the e-golf tour at the time, which I don't think is even around anymore. Um, I just did whatever you could to try to get out there and had some success, but not the level of success that I had in amateur golf. And I sort of thought, I don't know why this is happening. I know I'm a good player. I know I should be on tour. Um, and sometimes it's just, it takes a matter of time and it takes a matter of um, a catalyst to sort of, I guess, spring you into another level, maybe of confidence or of comfort, feeling like you belong. You, you tend to hear that line a lot. Um, and it happened to be qualifying for the U.S. Open. Uh, in 2013, when it was held in Marion, that was my catalyst. And that, for whatever reason, playing that week, um, I played with some amazing players and practice rounds, and I just got a, a really good understanding of their game and where I was at. And that provided a barometer to understand that, okay, I can play on tour. This is no big deal. I'm going to be fine. Um, and then, for whatever reason, that fall, um, I had typically signed up for USQ school only. It had been the approach that I always employed. I felt like that was the right thing to do. And then Jim Ahern, who was um, 
my amateur titleist rep uh, had encouraged me to sign up for a European tour Q school for whatever reason. He's like, why don't you just try Europe? And I thought, nah, that sounds weird. And I talked to my dad about it. And for whatever reason, we were like, yeah, let's give it a shot. Uh, so I went to Europe and there is a wild story about Q school there, um, which I'll share with you now. Sure. such that, um, so I go to Q school and the first stage is in Germany and I fly there and I play really well. I end up, I think, winning the first stage by five shots or so. So I'm feeling good about myself and then fly home, go to first stage, I believe in the U S play well again. Um, and then fly back over seas for second stage and end up losing my wallet on the plane on my way to Spain. That's, so that, that's a problem. That is a major problem. And I get off uh, the plane and I'm in the main terminal and I realize, oh, I don't have my wallet. So I go back to the gate to try to get back in the plane and they won't let me back in the plane. And then I file a claim with the airport trying to get my wallet back for whatever reason never shows up and I have no money. I have a passport and I have my phone and I need to get somewhere to my final destination. And I can't do it because I don't have a wallet. So I remember that I booked a flight. I had to wait in Spain. I booked a flight the next day with miles in my account, ultimately flew there. I had my dad fly over to rent a rental car for me. Uh, and Chase ultimately, I think, shipped, you know, a credit card, whatever it was, but basically had a rental car that my dad provided. I went to second stage in Spain. I ended up finishing fourth or fifth there, get through, wow. go to final stage and finish fifth there. And it was like, did it through all this turmoil. And, um, and it was sort of a, it's funny, it was sort of a, um, Oh, I guess uh, Harbinger for you know my future experiences on tour. They were they were kind of similar to that. That's that's cashing in a lot of points with with the dad to have him fly. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, I mean, have you paid that one off yet? Or I mean, that, he's that, still collecting on that he's one. Still collecting on that one. That's <laughs> that's a little bit more than than hitting Titleist balls and sinking them back into the box. I mean, that's that's a different level of uh, of of. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a whole different level there. Um, all right, so you you I want to before we move on to playing on the European tour in 2014, uh, talk to me about Marion. Talk to me about the U.S. Open. I guess lessons that you learned, and it almost sounds like playing mini tours, playing state opens, and being surrounded by guys like you that are not quite at the level yet. It almost sounds like a uh, like a misery loves company kind of a situation where you're just you're not surrounded by the guys that you want to be playing with. You're surrounded with everyone else that's at that same level, so you don't see what's above. You don't see what you can aspire to. What did you learn at Marion? If you could take, what were a couple of the takeaways? You're exactly right about that that mindset and that attitude. Um, I learned so much from Marion. I learned how to be a professional. I learned how to conduct myself on a golf course. I mean, I of course always knew that, but it's totally different when you're, when you're a professional and you do it for, you know, your career. Um, and I'll never forget. I played a uh, practice round when you go through and you sign up, you get your player's gift. You can pick your practice round tee times. You just go through a variety of different checkpoints. Yep. And I remember seeing the tee sheet, the practice round and i thought oh my gosh 
of all the players in the U.S. Open, who do I want to play with? Who do I want to play practice round with? And I, for whatever reason, was I couldn't decide whether I wanted to play with Adam Scott or Steve Stricker. And ultimately ended up signing up to play with Steve Stricker because I just adored him as a person and loved his game. Um, and so I played with him. And we're on the first tee and he goes, hey, John, I'm Steve. Nice to meet you. And I'm kind of laughing inside. I'm like, yeah, of course, I know you're yeah, Steve Stricker. Yeah, like, yeah, no shit. Yeah, no shit, Steve Stricker. <laughs> of course. So we go out and play nine holes and he is a complete gentleman. And then Jerry Kelly joins us on the back. Oh, OK, cool. And obviously they're hometown friends from Wisconsin. And I will never forget this. We're on, actually, I think we must have played the back nine first and then went to the front. We're on the fifth hole and I have like a six footer for par and it's a little downhill and I jam it for whatever reason and it goes eight feet by. And Jerry Kelly looks at me and he goes, son, if you want to play out here, you better learn to hit those putts a little differently. And that was just a complete lesson on how to, how to manage risk in your round of golf. Like not everything is make or break. Right. <laughs> so that, those were, those were some of the smaller lessons and things that I learned uh, from playing out there, but uh, I didn't play poorly. I didn't play great. I played okay. Um, I ended up missing the kayak by four shots. It was mostly, due to sort of the way that I finished. I think I finished with a double and maybe another bogey. Um, but I was sort of in and around the cut line for most of the tournament, which gives you a little bit of excitement. Right. Knowing that, you know, you've got a chance to make the cut. And when people ask me, oh, did you make the, you know, did you make the weekend in your first, in your first U.S. Open? I said, yeah, of course I made the weekend. There's a rain delay. So we had to yeah. finish on Saturday morning. <laughs> so of course I made the weekend, but I missed the cut. But it was a wonderful wearing experience. And it just gives you a different level of confidence after competing in an event like that to know that you belong and you can play with those guys. And for people that are in the distance debate and talking about how we got to roll the golf ball back and golf courses can't compete, I know it's it's not a uh, uh, I, I know that's a very unique ex, unique situation with Marion, but uh, I am assuming Marion uh, held its own. Oh, Ben, I recall going into the week. I don't recall what commentator it was, but they were projecting scores of anywhere between 15 and 20 under to win the event. And I went out and played my first practice round. And I thought to myself, if 15 or 20 under wins this week, I'm going to quit golf tomorrow. Okay. Like there was no chance anybody was even coming close to that. I remember if I absolutely blacked out and played the greatest round of golf I'd ever played, I could maybe see shooting three or four under. That was it. That was all that golf course was going to give you. And sure enough, Justin Rose won it one over. So I knew that, you know, my sense and my beat on the golf course was right because scores were not even close to what they projected. Yeah, I, I kind of like seeing that. I don't I don't necessarily want to see the, the pros get absolutely destroyed and beat up, but there's something to be said. We're just, you know, once a year seeing, seeing it right around par or, or three under or, or three over, whatever it is, but just, you know, understanding that there's so much integrity needed for every shot on the golf course. Totally. And you don't need to roll the ball back. All you need to do is set up golf courses just a little differently. Marion happens to have a lot of fairways that don't really run like I guess they run perpendicular to, to the angle that you're driving it at. So you sort of have to work shots into the fairway as opposed to just bombing a drive down the middle. Right. Um, the rough was obviously crazy thick. The greens were fast. And you had some length in areas that mattered, like the 18th hole. 
gosh, played forever. And the drive, you got to carry it 270, it felt like, to get over this this peak of, of this canyon. Um, and I remember Jerry Kelly saying to me when we were playing, he's, you know, we're back in the back tee and he's hitting his drive. He's like, man, I can't carry it to the fairway. I got to land it literally in, in the walkway. In the walkway. To have, it, to have a shot. And sure enough, he hit a drive and he landed in the walkway. Oh, God. But, uh, Big golf course was not long, but it played brutally tough. Did you uh, did you hit a shot on eighteen from the Hogan plaque? Of course. Okay. You and? have to. And and uh, long, I landed on the green and long. I certainly did not hold it. Nice. Yeah, that's one course I need to go play because I'm I'm kind of a Hogan fan, so I would uh, I would I would drop a small bucket there. They probably wouldn't like that, but I would I'd. I'd <laughs> I'd ask first, and then once they escort me out. But no, I, I that's one place I got to check out. Um, oh, that's fabulous! So you you make it through there with lessons learned, and then rockets you, uh, you know, through Q school, and you have your European tour card. And as you said, you were like, eh, Europe. I don't I don't know much about it. I'm assuming this is your first time, first time out of the country. I'm guessing your immediate thought. You're looking at the the schedule. You're looking at the tournaments that you could be playing in, and you got South Africa and Hong Kong, Abu Dhabi, and, and just all these different locations that you may have seen on a map, may not have seen on a map. How do you plot your way around as a rookie? I'm sure there's different pecking orders. You don't get to just play in anything you want to. So how do you sit down and, and sort this one out? Uh, that is a wonderful question. So that it was basically my second time out of the country. I happened to play in an event in Germany when I was 16. And if you can believe this, I finished second in the event. I lost by 10 to Brandon Grace. Oh, God, <laughs> someone, someone who I had certainly never heard of and the golf world had never heard of. And I thought, wow, who is this guy? <laughs> sure enough, he's awfully good. He's, uh, he's not bad. But uh, no, I mean, I thought the same thing. I'm looking at the schedule and I'm thinking to myself, my first three events are in South Africa, then Hong Kong, then South Africa, then back home three weeks in a row. I fly over 30,000 miles, which I think is more than like one full time around the world. Oh, my God. But it was the travel was just crazy. And not to mention my first event. I will never forget this. I show up and we're staying in this game park which is essentially like a zoo, except you have a hotel in the inside of the zoo. Sounds safe. And Sounds very was, safe. Oh, very safe. There's like elephants and lions and everything just right around you. And I go out and I play uh, the first round and I'm sort of hitting it all over the place. I think cause I'm jet lagged and I just flown whatever, 9,000 miles. Yeah. Um, and for whatever reason, I'm on like the seventh hole and I pull out an alignment stick out of my bag because I carried alignment sticks always because I use them on the range. And I'm off to the side of this part three and I lay the alignment stick down just to make sure that my alignment's right. Because I think that that's sort of what, what's causing um, me to hit it all over the place. And so it's always good to, you know, check your alignment with a with an alignment stick during a round of a professional golf <laughs> tournament. Makes sense. Go ahead. I'm sorry to cut you off there. So... Uh, you could tell I'm going to blame that one on the jet lag again. Sure, sure. And Magnus Carlson, who I happen to be playing with, um, actually had my then caddy on the bag for him. And Magnus politely says to me, John, I don't think you can do that. And I'm like, no, 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 you can do this. It's fine. And he's like, no, I don't think you can. 
So I ended up finishing the round and I said, look, I'll talk to the referee after I finish. So I finished, I think I shoot one under. I talked to the ref after it and I said, this is what I did. I think it's a DQ, but I'm not sure how the rules work. Like me thinking as though the rules are going to be different in South Africa. Yeah. And he's like, no, John, it's a DQ. Of course. It's my first event on tour. I'm DQ'd. Perfect. Good start. Good start. Unbelievable. Wow. And then, yeah, end up traveling, you know, to Hong Kong, play okay. And then I come back to South Africa and I, I had my first good event. It's tied for six in uh, the Nelson Mandela. So that was my start. Nice. So, uh, how I mean, how is the how is the culture on that tour? Um, I know that people may think on the PGA tour it's all private jets and resorts, and you know, it, I guess it kind of at times gets the uh, the rap of these guys are very insulated. They have their you know they have their team, you know, they have their swing coach and their mental coach and their their physio guy. And um, what was the culture like on that tour? You know what? I would have to say uh, there's a lot of truth to that. And the culture on the European tour is just drastically different. You you don't travel with a team because you're not going to fly eight people to Africa and then to Asia and then to the Middle East. It's just not going to happen. Uh, a lot of the players stayed together, dined together, and played together, um, which I never really played on the U.S. tour, but I understand it to be a little different. Um, and the culture was just fantastic. Obviously, you can imagine, Ben, you're out to dinner with an Italian, a Frenchman, a Spaniard, and an Asian guy, and me. And there's five of us there, and we all speak different languages. And, you know, some of the guys will speak to speak to each other in Spanish or French at dinner. And I sort of, my gut reaction when I first got out there was like, oh, these guys hate me. You know, they're talking right. about me behind their back, right. they're talking in French and Spanish just because they want to say, some, you know, some insulting thing about me. And then I realized, no, it's just obviously more comfortable for them to speak in their home language. Right. Uh, but it was drastically different. And it was, I, n- nothing against the U.S. tour. I'm sure the U.S. tour is phenomenal. And if I had ever gotten the opportunity to play there, I would have loved it. But I'm happy that the three years that I spent on tour were spent in Europe because they were fantastic. Yeah, if I would have, you probably should have figured out how to uh, what what DQ and alignment stick uh, sounded like in French or Spanish, because then you would have realized they were talking about you. <laughs> that is so true, for sure. What? Uh, give me one or give me a couple of the events that you played that year. That if a listener or myself or someone's looking at some point down the line, obviously looking to travel the world and go check out some spots for with you know really good golf good nightlife good uh you know sights to see what's maybe a place that uh you still remember thinking man i i i need to get back there for a week just to hang out oh speaking of the place i got dq'd it's the alfred dunhill which is in um, kruger park in south africa okay and it is one of the finest golf courses you'll ever play. It's called Leopard Creek, owned by Johan Rupert, which I'm sure you're familiar with him. Um, he's like the wealthiest guy in South Africa. He owns Richemont, which owns Peter Millar. Oh, okay. Um, and this is his playground, and it's totally gated in. It's right on Kruger National Park. So you're on like the 12th or 13th hole, which I think is the downhill Dogwood left par five and the back of the green backs up to the park where you see crocodiles and hippos and lions and everything. It's just remarkable. I mean, if you talk to guys, anybody who has been there will have just, it, it takes your breath away. 
It's a wild place. Um, So that was one that, you know, you certainly have to get to. Um, And I would say some of the other places that I thought were really cool, like, I mean, we played the French Open that year um, at Paris National where they played the Ryder Cup. That place is just unbelievable. Like, to play a golf course, I grew up, obviously, in Cleveland, so I played Firestone a lot. And to me, that was like, it reminded me of Firestone, but it was almost like on steroids. Like, it was Firestone length. The rough was even, you know, higher. It played, for whatever reason, it happened to play longer because the weather was always miserable. Um, And it was just tough. So, like, that was a golf course that I totally would recommend playing. And then I think the other one that I would mention is just the Dunhill Links, which I'm sure you're familiar with. It's Carnoustie, uh, St. Andrews, and Kings Barnes. Yeah. And it's a pro-am event, and it is a riot. You're, you end up having amazing amateur partners, and obviously, you know, Scotland is just a fantastic place. Yeah, yeah. St. Andrews is uh, one of my – what's one of my favorites? That, that place is – it's – it's kind of all about the hang. I mean, the golf is awesome, but uh, just being in that town is just something special as well. It's so cool. It's so neat. You play that year, and I think you finish about 125 or so and have to go back to Q School to get back onto the tour in 2015. And before we get to that, one really interesting thing about that year on 2014, that's kind of the year that Brooks Kepka showed up on everyone's radar saying who's this american kid from florida that just says the hell with you know going the web.com or whatever it's called you know i think it's the web at that point yeah you know forget about the web route i'm going to europe so it him and actually peter uline kind of really brought that path to uh to everyone's attention before i was speaking with you i did a little bit of digging and i find this this clip that looks like you and brooks did in india it's one of those like you know rookie on tour uh little you know four minute packages and it's you guys riding in tuk tucks, which i guess are like a cross between like a golf cart and a <laughs> i mean just this really uh, what are the um oh shit what's the uh, rickshaws yeah so it's kind of like a golf cart and a rickshaw combined made motorized <laughs> i guess that's the best way to describe it and it's you guys riding around in India trying not to get sideswiped by, you know, 70 other tuk-tuks on the road at the same time. But what really struck me is that Brooks is, like, joking around on camera. And I'll put a link to this thing in the show notes of this episode. And people watching will be like, okay, that is a different Brooks Kepka than I've ever seen in my life. So <laughs> what what was your take on Kepka? Oh, man, Brooks uh... – the first time, so I didn't really know Brooks that well. Um, surprisingly, going through college, Brooks just didn't really, I don't think he developed until um, later in his life. Clearly, has always been an amazing athlete. Uh, but I think that his golf game sort of prospered a little later. And I remember the first time seeing him uh, in Qatar, we played nine holes together. And I'm watching him hit balls in the range. And I'm like, holy cow, this guy stripes it. Uh, but he, like you said, was a different person at the time. I think he's put on, gosh, it feels like he's put on 25 pounds of muscle uh, since then. But Brooks is, I mean, just, he was awesome. He had a killer mindset, a killer attitude, and knew he was there to win. And, and 
that sort of mindset has never changed. Like he had a fantastic start to his European tour career, his challenge tour career. I'm sure you've seen, he's won events by 10 shots, Oh yeah. Um, but no, he, he was awesome. And we hung out a little bit. I mean, obviously being Americans over there, you sort of tend to stay together, but sure. he was, no, he was different. His personality was different. I think he was enjoying it more. And now it's a little more business to him. Like I said, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's, it's, it's fascinating, but it literally looked like he was just there on, like on spring break, like hat, hat backwards, <laughs> t-shirt just hanging. I was like, wow, that's a, uh, that's a different dude. So talk to me about, so you're right outside that cut line of keeping the, uh, keeping the card in 2015. So talk to me about Q school to get on the tour in 2015. Oh, not something you want to go back to. Q oh. school feels like take, you know, takes years off your life. If you get a tour card, you want to keep your tour card. You never want to go back to Q school ever again. It's just, it, it's funny. You have to look at it. It's one of those things, Ben, like we talked about earlier, you have to have the mindset that, you know, what, wherever Q schools held or whatever happens that week, like you're going to have a great, great attitude and a great mindset and perform and get back your card. But it's just so difficult after going through, you know, a year on tour traveling all over the place and then coming up short and it's like emotionally draining. So you sort of have to press the reset button and go under it with an open mindset. Um, and that particular year, I'm sure you're referencing one of the rounds that I shot there, which I'll touch on just briefly. But uh, Q School was relatively mundane through <laughs> the first couple of rounds. Um, and then the fourth round comes around um, and they've, they've got a cut. So there's a cut, certain percentage of the guys, obviously, in the field don't make it to rounds five and six. And I remember looking at my caddy Todd on the chipping green at PGA Catalonia, which is the golf course that it was held at. And I, I, for whatever reason, looked at him and I was like, Todd, whatever happens today, let's just take it shot by shot. And I looked back on that moment and I thought, hmm, I think I probably had, you know, I must have had the right mindset going into the round, wasn't sort of getting ahead of myself. Um, and my game was okay at the time. It wasn't wonderful, but it was good enough. Um, and we went out that day and, I'm not going to take you shot by shot, but the first hole was a short par five. And I've got a five footer for Eagle and I don't even hit the hole. I missed the hole by a cup. And I'm like, Oh, brutal. I just started. Like you're thinking I need to make an Eagle here. I need to shoot a really low round to get myself back into it. And for whatever reason, just you have one of those days that you, it just all happens. And I had a couple of rounds on tour that, were low, like one of my first events um, in South Africa, I ended up shooting 61 in the second round. I shot a low round in Italy. I think I was 10 under through 12 holes in the last round of the Italian Open. So I had sort of glimpses of going low in the past. And right. for whatever reason, um, I'm the type of guy that when it's all going good, because it doesn't go good very often, I just keep my foot on the gas. Okay. And that day, shot seven under on the front. Um, I made the turn. I made another couple of birdies and ended up birdieing the last for 58. So obviously around you, you never dream of, but um, it happened. And I didn't really know what to think. You know, you're in this, you're in this mindset. You're like, what did I just shoot? I was, you, you completely are blocked out the entire round. You're in the zone. You have no idea what's going on. Yeah. If I had a nickel for every time I did that, I mean, it's just, <laughs> I'm sorry. So, <laughs> All right, so so you shoot the fifty eight. Um, what is the press like after that? Because I, I I mean it was on the Golf Channel back here in the states, 
where do they whisk you off to after you shoot 58 in Q school? Man, unbelievable. So I remember getting a couple of calls right away. We need, we need you to talk on, you know, X, Y, and Z show, the golf channel, or we need you to talk to ESPN or whoever it was. Um, and Twitter was blowing up and you sort of get wrapped up into it because it's kind of fun. I mean, anytime you do something good in life, you want to sort of be, um, held in high praise for it and you want you know people to applaud you for it um so i got wrapped up in that for probably i don't know a couple hours and i remember i was sitting in uh the hotel hallway um drinking a heineken on the ground because i was so tired and i was like i just gotta put my phone down (laughs) gotta get away from this for a little bit yeah i think i was talking to matt nixon who was a buddy of mine he was sort of hanging around and i was like i i just need a break so you're, you're worn out. You're totally worn out, but like, it's one round, it's one day. It's not like you won the event. So you've got to put your shoes on and go out and play the next day. And then the next day comes and <laughs> yeah, you, I'm, I'm really, I, I, you, know, you know, I don't want to go here, but, but I, I, uh, you, but I have to, I mean, so the next day you shoot 78. <laughs> I mean, just, just tell me, did you go out and get liquored up and just, you know, you woke up in some, some girl's bed at four in the morning and couldn't find your shoes and lost your wallet and just like, I mean, is it that good of a story or is it just like the, the, the golf guys just said, all right, guess what? We're going to get even today. It definitely was not the former. Okay. I had maybe a few Heinekens that night, but uh, nothing crazy. And no, I would caveat it with Ben. It was a different golf course. So, <laughs> the 58 was on the tour course. Okay. And the 78 was on the stadium course. Um, and anybody who has played those two golf courses knows that they're drastically different. Right. Um, stadium course is tough. Not that the tour course isn't, but the stadium course is a, is a big challenge. And I went out and I was just jittery. And you have those days and you try to fight off the, the, the jitters and you're like, man, I just want to get settled into this round and get going. And for whatever reason, get tripled like the, the second or third hole. And it was just an awful day. It was a, it, it was 18 holes. It felt like I played 100 holes. It was just not good. So, yeah, that's the story. The story sounds great when you hear 58. And then I remind a lot of people that I shot 78 the next day. So... That was not one of my finer moments. I was going to say, like, when 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 people ask about that and then you bring up the 78, I mean, is it just kind of like, I mean, it's almost like, oh, hey, how's how's your girlfriend? Yeah, we broke up. Oh, <laughs> oh. Hey, how's that, how's that new, how's that new car? How's that new job? Yeah, I got fired last, I got fired last week. Oh. Oh, it totally is. They all want to ask all the questions and then they hear the 78 and it just goes, goes quiet. That they, it's like, oh, next time. Oh my gosh. So it's like, kind of like you'll always have that just interesting story of like, because <laughs> you kind of have that thing in your pocket where you can kind of just like, you know, zing someone. They just feel like crap. Yeah, you do. I don't, I don't use it very often. Maybe as I get older, I'll use it more. So walk me through a little bit about, you know, post Q school. It's 2015, you know, or, or you're, you're making your prep to, to play. What are you going to do in 2015? Um, how do you proceed after that? Yeah, it's then you're in a very tricky position. As many players find themselves in, you've got conditional status. So you just don't know what events you're going to get into. A lot of events you're going to get into last minute because, you know, you're working your way down the waiting list. And all of a sudden the guy, you know, withdraws on Monday of the event. You literally fly there on Tuesday. Like the Spanish Open that year, I flew to Valderrama on a Tuesday. 
and played. I think I shot 80, 80 or 82, 81. So it's just, it's not good prep going into events like that, but yeah. um, you, you have to make a decision and you have to play in whatever events you get into and hopefully you play well and you get some momentum going. And if not, then you sort of, I think you probably chalk it up to a loss in the beginning of the year, a third of the way through the year. And then you sort of switch your mindset to playing on the challenge tour for the guys here you play on the corn ferry now. So that's the approach that you have to employ. Um, and then I did in 2015 and the beginning of the year was okay. I sort of had moments of, you know, positivity and played okay in the Indian open early on. Um, and then I started to get some momentum going. Like I think, I think I finished fourth in the Czech open, which is the challenge tour event. Um, and then I totally sort of pivoted my, my, uh, attention and focus to challenge tour. And I played out the remainder of the challenge tour event, uh, on, on the schedule and got to the grand final, which was in Oman of all places. I never thought I'd play a golf tournament in Oman. <laughs> I gotta be honest. I didn't even know that was a country. Okay. Kind of uh, the event. And I went and it was like somebody had cut my heart out. I am playing so well. I shoot a couple under the first few days going into Sunday. I know I probably need to shoot a couple under again. And I'm hitting it really well. And just the putts are not going in. And I remember having birdie putts. I'm like 16, 17, 18. I got 15 footers in every hole. And every hole they lip out. And I finished, I think I finished tied for 17th. And Ben, you're just sitting there waiting. I'm watching every guy come through 18. And I know that I need like a couple of bogeys. And it's not that you want to sit there and hope the guys make bogeys because you clearly don't want to do that. But at the end of the day, it's your life. So yeah. you kind of you kind of are hoping that they do. Well, yeah. Um, and you're not, you're not, hope, reason, you're not hoping them to, to fall apart. You're hoping that your score uh, holds up. That's all you're hoping for. Yeah, exactly. So as, you know, as luck would have it, uh, I think I finished two spots outside of the top 15 on the challenge score money list that, that year, which gets you European tour status. And I find myself again in the same position in 2016 with conditional status playing half a year on the European tour, half a year in the challenge tour. And that's just a not lot of, not a lot of travel, a lot of not knowing where you're going to play a lot of, I'm guessing just a lot of red eye midnight last minute flights costing a lot of money i mean it's not like you're just zipping around the united states you're zipping around a continent yeah and you have no idea where you're getting into and what you're doing and you're trying to come home and have somewhat of a life and prepare it just makes it really really difficult it does but if if that's your livelihood and you're solely focused on that then you accept the consequences of it um, some guys probably would have pivoted and tried to play in the U S at that point and said, you know what, like, I'm not comfortable doing this. Like I had talked to Chase Kepka a couple weeks ago. Um, and he sort of found himself in the same position. He's like, I have conditional challenge tour status or conditional European tour status and challenge tour status. And he's like, I just don't want to fly all around the world and play in random events and wonder what I'm going to get into next. I think he full blown took a big step back and said, I'm going to focus on the States. I need to play in Latino America or, you know, uh, the McKenzie tour and kind of build my way up there. And I probably would have taken the same path, um, had I not known that ultimately I want to do something different with my career, which led me to where I'm at now. Well, before we talk about your career now and, and your transition out of playing professionally, um, talk to me about 
how you get a sponsor's invite to play in the 2016 Memorial. What a stroke of luck. That was the most unbelievable week. So I had been dogging those guys for years. Being an Ohio native, like it always felt like they gave out an Ohio spot for whatever reason to whoever the best, you know, professional or amateur player in the state at that point was. It felt like Memorial gave out a spot to that person. So I was dogging them for years. And I had everybody who would listen try to lob in a call for me and get me into the event, just as you should if you're looking for a sponsor's invite to any event. So anyone who's not doing that, I don't think is trying hard enough. Um, so when you, say, up, when you yeah. say dog them, you mean you're writing letters. Like, walk, oh. okay, so how, <laughs> how, do you, how do you write that letter? I mean, how, how, yeah, talk to me about it because I think that's one thing I don't think I've spoken to anyone about a lot is getting sponsors invites. How, what's the process there? Oh, so you have to find out who, basically, who moves the needle, who the tournament director is, or who is giving out the spots. And in that case, it was Dan Sullivan. So my letter basically went, hey, Dan, it's me again. <laughs> any any chance this year? <laughs> and uh, I had written him letters, multiple letters, for years and years. Um, and I knew that probably early on in my career when I was writing the letters, I didn't really merit the spot and then later on in my career once i had you know an established career on tour i probably did merit a spot maybe a little more so than i previously did so i end up getting uh an email from dan that says you know congratulations we've we've given you a spot and i think i'm been in like slovakia or somewhere i'm i'm not i'm not in the states and i remember looking at my phone and I get this note and I just get so much energy and so much excitement. Cause I always, you know, I grew up in Columbus. I watched the Memorial my entire life. I've been a huge Nicholas fan and um, I get in the event and I, I will forever be thankful to Dan Sullivan and, and Jack for giving me the invite. And just like Marion us open, you're around the players that you ultimately want to be around on a full-time basis so uh, was was Stricker and Kelly waiting for you again, or did you have different practice round? I mean, do you have diff- different practice round partners this time? <laughs> I had different practice round partners this time. Uh, although I'm pretty sure Stricker played, I'm not sure if Jerry Kelly played, but um, I it was the like the first time that I had gotten back to the states and I could like hang with my buddies that I grew up with. Yeah, like Bud Colley and Scott Langley and all these guys. I mean, I just, I had grown up playing with these guys and it was good to see him again and good to hang out with him. Like Tony Finau, I played with a bunch growing up. Um, and no, I played with Patton Desire in a practice round. I remember I met Patton through, uh, Harris, who was always a good friend of mine growing up and Patton's story is so interesting. And like, I had always followed his story from afar, how he sort of didn't gain his notoriety until later in his career and then came on tour and had this like insane start where he wins multiple events. And I played him, nine holes of them at uh at Muirfield and I'm like wow you're getting so good so being just playing in the U.S. and being around different guys was a totally different experience but like getting back to your point it gives you the sense of confidence that like you can play you know it's just reassurance that you're around these guys you see what they do and no doubt some guys like Finau have different physical gifts but like you see a guy like Zach Johnson and he doesn't have any physical gifts he's just he thinks better than most people do, and his wedge game's tight, and that's why he's so good. Yep. So it gives you the reassurance that you can play. You um, 
we've talked a lot this episode about having the right mindset that you, I guess, had as a junior golfer qualifying for USGA events, and then obviously it's it, it grew and was solidified with uh, with Coach Page at at Kent State, and it sounds to me that this is something that really took you through your entire professional career. Tough question: Are you a underachiever or an overachiever in your opinion in professional golf? Oh gosh, that is such a good question. Um, and the only reason I answer this way is because I, I, because I cut it short and I would say underachiever. Um, if I, I, I think that you probably would get this answer from anybody, but if I had to evaluate my, that's such a good question. If I had to evaluate my potential, I would say that my potential would be to be a multi, you know, tournament winner on the PGA tour and potentially win a major. I felt like my game was good enough to do that. My mindset was good enough to do that. The only problem is I didn't want to do that. And so that was why I think I would answer you as an underachiever. Okay. Um, but perversely, the fact that I ended my career in golf so early gave me an opportunity to do what I'm doing now. And I think overachieving in, in the field that I'm at now. So it's, it's definitely touch and go. I think there's big give and takes um, when you look at it from only the golf lens or only, you know, my current career lens. So I'm, it sounds to me that you don't miss it. I do not miss professional golf one bit. No, I don't. Sadly, I know that there are so many folks out there that, that love the game and love professional golf and would chase it forever. But no, there's not been one day since I've left professional golf that I've looked back. And do you have any desire to get your amateur status back? So I did reapply for my amateur status and the USGA kindly enough told me it was going to be four years okay, instead of a shorter time, which I was a little upset about, but yeah, I applied for it back in the fall of 2017. Um, so I've got about another year and a half until I get back. Okay. So we're, we're thinking like, are, are you doing it for the purpose of being able to go play a member guest with one of your clients or do you have some bigger things uh, on your radar uh, down the line? It's a good question. I think it's it's a really delicate balance to have a competitive golf career and be really good at what you do for a living. Right. Um, I would say, as of now, my aspirations in amateur golf are definitely take a backseat to my aspirations in my career. I think that I will ultimately try to play in mid-ams and things like that right. um, just because the coveted ticket to Augusta is such a premium that obviously I'm not going to pass that up. Um, but no, I, I don't, I, I had a really nice amateur career. Like winning the Western Am was obviously an amazing thing to do. I played a lot of USGA events. There's a couple of select events that I think I would like to play in again, but it's not as though I would be sort of a professional amateur, right, like okay. quote unquote, like most guys are. Right. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, I found something you want to talk about there. Professional amateurs. <laughs> you you're going to try and slip that one past me, weren't you? Yeah, I caught that one. We're not going there. We don't, we're not going to get into I could. I feel that there's another 15 minutes in you talking about your philosophy on professional amateurs. We're not, we're not doing that, John. We're not doing that. Okay. We're not doing it. I'm running the show here. Um, so, all right. So you, you're in this, you moved into your financial career. You're enjoying that. Tell me about some of the things that you see maybe with the mini tour guys and the collegiate players now that they're, or I'm sorry, the collegiate players that are about to turn pro 
that are really in the in your shoes way back, you know, when you left Kent State, they're about to do what you did, whether it's a Quade Cummins from Oklahoma or a Sahithigala from Pepperdine. You know, they all got to start somewhere. Do you do you keep track of where things are in the game? Like if one of these kids comes to you and said, "Hey, you kind of did you you did the same thing that I'm I'm looking to do. Do you have any advice for me?" You know, what are some of the things maybe you can pass on as just, you know, experiences that might be able to help a, a guy that embarking on a professional career? My experience uh, getting started professionally was such that, um, and I think this was really just feedback from a lot of people that I had sort of asked about the process, is that I think you want to be as diligent and as organized as possible. You totally have to run the process like a business, like staying organized, staying on top of writing letters to events to try to get, you know, a sponsor's exemption, making sure that you sort of plot out your schedule. Um, and even really before that, I think you need to go to, you know, wealthy guys at your club or wealthy guys around you and you need to raise money because you have to be properly financed before you can even make a run at it. Um, and that was what, then I think from, you know, my perspective, my first two years that I tried to play professionally or that I, I should say I played professionally, I financed my own endeavors and it was like I had a small contract with Titleist and whatever money I made on the course, I sort of recycled and, you know, that was my future entry fees and my travel budget. And then I got really, really serious about raising money. I went out to a couple of guys in Cleveland um, and raised some money. And that just gave me so much comfort and confidence to go out and play and not have to worry about where the next dime or, you know, entry fee was coming from. Um, and that was what I think will ultimately free up a lot of the college players that are coming out right now. So go raise money and, and be organized and run your, run your golf career like a business. It's really going to be interesting too. I just thought of this, you know, not to pivot back to the topic of the day, but you know, with the economy falling down because of the coronavirus, you know, I'm sure it's going to come back up at some point. Cause at some point we're going to kind of get back to, you know, we're going to open the country again. It's in some manner, but I, I, this really is going to have ramifications for those guys looking to get those, you know, bucks and sponsors and, and getting wealthy guys to kind of chip in or wealthy women to chip in. Th that's going to kind of put a wrench in a lot of things, isn't it? Oh, it's going to be a huge wrench in a lot of things. I mean, I was talking to Corey Connors, one of my good friends here locally talking about just the, the tour schedule and all the events that are sort of pushed back. And like, these are cancellations. These are not going to be rescheduled. Right. right? And for the guys who are coming out of school, you have to think about the, the ramifications for number one, the private capital that they're trying to raise from wealthy guys around their neighborhood and around their town. But like the, the sponsorship deals that are coming out of the club manufacturers are not going to look even close to what they looked like a year or two ago. So, I mean, it's going to be a huge trickle down effect for these guys. It's just going to get tighter and they're going to have to, they're going to be forced to be in a, you know, much more organized position and have to prove themselves with a great resume and definitely there'll be less money to go around yeah i i think it's going to be really interesting to see when professional golf gets going again and then obviously a lot of these college players um uh, you know they have the opportunity to go back uh, to school for another year of eligibility which i would imagine if you have that chance you should definitely do it i mean if you can squeeze in a master's degree there's nothing wrong with that um well uh I, I, we've covered quite a bit. Uh, I, you got any questions for me? I do, Ben. Thanks for asking. Oh, yeah, no. I would. Say, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> this is very broad, so run with it how you'd like. But um, I've had the opportunity to listen to a lot of your episodes, and you've had some incredibly fascinating people on. Um, 
is there anything that you know, over the course of the episode sticks with you as being a really interesting story or an interesting take on something or perspective, like what, what sort of pops out over the course of the number of, of episodes that you've done that, that is meaningful? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a big question. Um, about 125 episodes we're at now. And I'm trying to think back to, um, wow, that's a real good one. I think one of them that really stood out for me, you know, I've spoken to, I've spoken to a lot, uh, I mean, college players, college coaches, amateurs, um, professionals. And I think one that really stuck out for me is the interview I did with Steve Lebrun. And Steve Lebrun has been playing professionally for over 20 years, Florida guy. He is played the minor league tour he was on the web he was on the pga tour i think for a couple stints and i remember talking to him we did the episode in person it was at bear lakes country club in west palm beach that i'm sure you know very well and this is a guy that if you follow the mini tours if you follow golf at all this guy is an absolute legend when it comes to uh, just playing for a living and playing every day and, and just having it be so real where it's his job. And he, if he's not top, he's got to be top five in career earnings on the minor league golf tour. And I sat down and spoke with him and hearing him talk about, you know, uh, financial hardships and, you know, uh, you know, having a check bounce for entry fees or, you know, having three credit cards maxed out and having, you know, kids and and just still chasing after it. And maybe the perception in the world or in the golf world thinking that guys that play or women that play professionally have they just got it made. I mean, they got the the, the flights are booked for them and they're staying in the fancy hotels and it's courtesy cars and yeah, maybe they're not winning on the PGA Tour, but they're right there anyway. I saw them on TV. I mean, web.com, it's on TV. It's on the Golf Channel. It's on TV. They're 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 TV stars. And I'm talking to a guy and I'm thinking, "Oh my god, this guy is there's nothing different than the guy that's living paycheck to paycheck." And there's no security. And I just got out of that episode thinking, "Wow, this guy can shoot 65 in his sleep." And I don't know how well he sleeps though. And that yes. and that was one episode. I mean, I've had a lot of great people that I've spoken with, uh, but that was one that really did stick out to where, okay, I've been talking to people and they've been telling little stories about, you know, I won the U.S. Amateur here and I've done, I've accomplished this, I've accomplished that. But this one really kind of stopped me in my tracks. So true. So that that was one i mean there's great stories i mean one of the earlier episodes i did with uh, doug snope i mean <laughs> doug snope is an amateur guy we you know from apopka florida we've played florida state golf association events and just the nicest guy in the world and just very unassuming and he had tried to qualify for the u.s senior open a handful of times and finally got in as an alternate in 2012 and he got in because Nick Price had, I believe, a medical or a family emergency. I can't remember what, but anyway, Nick Price was out. So Doug Snope gets the call, who is just not flashy, he uses a long putter. I think he was probably using it side saddle at the time. 
and he gets the call and he says, all right, Doug, you're in as an alternate. And instead of them putting him with, you know, just the, the regular, you know, random amateur qualifiers or the journeyman pro, no, he gets Nick Price's spot and Nick Price is playing with Tom Watson and Fred Couples. Oh my gosh. So to hear that story about the everyman guy that I've played amateur golf with who was on that stage, that was a great one. There's so many great ones. Golf has so many great stories. Thanks for sharing those. Well, they're all available. Uh, you know, uh, everyone listening, they know that they're uh, they know they're at the back of the range.com and um, all those stories are there. Apple Podcasts and Spotify and all that good stuff. I mentioned that every single episode, so they are all there. Um, we got to do this again sometime because I have a feeling uh, in, a, in a year or two, when you got that amateur status back, we're going to be talking about U.S. Mid-Ams with you. <laughs> I would love to be back on. Thank you so much for having me. And there you have it. Special thanks to John Hahn for joining me on this episode. I kind of like the fact that he turned the tables on me and forced me to answer some questions. I might need to do more of that. Don't forget, follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Instagram handle is the Back of the Range Podcast. Every single episode is available at thebackoftherange.com. We'll see you next time for another episode here at the Back of the Range.